you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey everyone, Future Mac here. I'm opening this episode because there are a couple things that I need to put in front here. First of all, it has been brought to my attention that some of the discourse regarding Syria in our Halloween episode may be taken the wrong way. So I want to make it clear that when we're talking about the current state of things in Syria, we are in no way meaning to come down on the Syrian people at all, just on Bashar al-Assad and his buddies in particular for their shameful behavior and the way they've kind of wrecked the place, as authoritarian leaders often do. So yeah, anyone who was offended on behalf of Syrians, or who is both Syrian and offended, I apologize. I did not mean to imply anything negative about them, except for Bashar al-Assad, who, again, can f*** himself. Second, the reason that this episode is opening with just me talking, is because Audacity managed to eat the beginning of my side of the recording. So the first 15 minutes or so of this episode are frankly incomprehensible because you only hear Zoe's side of the conversation. So I had to just start the episode 15 minutes in. Luckily, most of what was lost was just our pre-show getting up to speed and the first, like, two sentences of the story. To give you a sense of why I couldn't just provide you Zoe's side of the conversation and maybe try and fill in from there, here is a short clip that comes from that deleted 15 minutes that I cannot explain at all and have no context for. Here you go. True. Slowly curdling and turning into strange colors. See what I mean? No idea what that was in relation to. So instead, I'm going to have to just read out the bits that we dropped, which, again, is just a couple sentences. And then we'll jump back into the episode as it was recorded. So this episode, we're going back to the Gesta Romanorum for a bit. And the reason for that is because one of the comments that uh, the Queen made in the tale of Macdotho's pig regarding the misogynistic beliefs prevalent in medieval times reminded me of a story in the Gesta Romanorum that had kind of stuck with me. So I decided, why don't we go back to the Gesta Romanorum this week, where we can read that story and then a couple others. So the story in question is tale number 125, which is entitled, Of Women, Who Not Only Betray Secrets, But Lie Fearfully. And it begins, There were two brothers, of whom one was a layman and the other a parson. The former had often heard his brother declare that there never was a woman who could keep a secret. He had a mind to put this maxim to the test in the person of his own wife. Anyway, into the episode as recorded, and before we go, here is another out-of-context Zoe, which I think is appropriate for the transition here. 
let's jump into the past where things were better than they are now, and it's sad that I'm saying that. Uh-huh. Expect this sort of talk from a person who wouldn't be allowed to marry, whereas I feel like a lay person would just have, you know, been done wrong by some woman in the past. Right. Well, maybe this person has as well. Either way, he's got a chip on his shoulder. Yes. Anyway, the layman had a mind to put this maxim to the test in the person of his own wife. And one night he addressed her in the following manner. My dear wife, I have a secret to communicate to you, if I were certain that you would reveal it to nobody. Should you divulge it, it would cause me the greatest uneasiness and vexation. In no uncertain terms. My lord, answered his wife, fear not. We are one body and your advantage is mine. In like manner, your injury must deeply affect me. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's the right answer. We're married, therefore, one of our benefits is both of our benefits, and one of our injuries is both of our injuries. That's part of being partners. Married. Yeah. I just want you to try and take a guess just on the general topic of what this secret might be. Can you give me, like, a category here? Personal issues. Personal issues. He can't get it up. That would make way more sense. Oh, no. But also... I think she would have noticed that. That's fair. That wouldn't really be a good secret. Well then, said he, know that my bowels being oppressed to an extraordinary degree, I fell very sick. My dear wife, what will you think? I actually voided a huge black crow, which instantly took wing and left me in the greatest trepidation and confusion of mind. Hold on. (laughs) The guy's got such bad IBS that he, like, he defecates a crow? Yes, that's his secret. A, a crow. Yeah, a, a live so this, one. Like, okay, see, at this rate, like, at this rate, I'm already 100% with a woman going to her local priest and saying, like, my husband's a witch or he's been cursed. Yes. Like, you don't keep this a secret. This is a really big health problem. <laughs> Can we, like, st- like... We need to frame this. Street smarts. If you start to just have bowel issues where you're, you know, defecating live animals, please get some help. Yes. Do not. This is not a secret that you want to keep. And if you out any kind of live bird that has gone beyond medical problems and you need to visit like your local shaman or something. Yeah. Go find your local shaman. Go find your local priest. You know, street smarts. We're coming back to this theme Go to your local priest. Go to your local shaman. Go find your local witch. Seether. Whatever whatever works for you. I already I'm already with this woman not keeping the <laughs> secret. I, I feel like this is not this is not a bad thing for this woman to do. <laughs> but anyway, continue. Is it possible? asked the innocent lady. But husband, why should this trouble you? You ought rather to rejoice that you are freed from such a pestilent tenant. So basically her response is, at least it's out of you, so that's good, right? That is not the response that I would have expected. <laughs> but she seems like a supportive wife. She's like, hey, you passed it? We're good. Here the conversation closed. In the morning, the wife hurried off to the house of a neighbor. My best friend, said she, may I tell you a secret? Oh no. <laughs> This does happen in small towns. I I can vouch for this happening in small towns. Everyone (laughs) in my neighborhood knows about me and everything I'm up to because my mother just tells everyone what I'm up to. I mean, like, 
it's not secrets or anything. She just she's like, my daughter's doing this. My daughter's you know pursuing fencing here or doing that. But like this does happen in small towns. But wow, okay, yeah, go off, go off, lady. We get the same thing in my like extended family, which is. You know, it's a big southern family, so it's almost a small town in itself. And I'll meet, like, a, a second cousin once removed, and they'll go like, Oh, yeah, you're in grad school, right? Could you tell me about it? I'm like, could you remind me what your name is? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm like, I've never met you before. How come you know this much about me? But anyway, uh, she asks her friend if she can tell her a secret. As safely as to your own soul, answered the fair auditor. Why, replied the other, a marvelous thing has happened to my poor husband. Being last night extremely sick, he voided two prodigious black crows, feathers and all, which immediately flew away. I am much oh, concerned. no. The fish was this big. <laughs> exactly. This does not, this does not only apply to women. No. We've all heard fishing stories like this. Like, you would, you would think that it's, like, this is already so wild to sh- a crow. Why do you need to make it two? <laughs> I don't know. I it's don't a live know. bird. How did that even get there? <laughs> Does he have a habit of swallowing live birds? Is this some sort of <laughs> subculture in medieval studies that I don't know about? Swallowing live birds? In France, they did eat whole birds, but they were dead. Like, that I can understand. They eat snails in France. I'm fine with that. But a live crow? If you ever want to be unsettled by something, do look up Ortolan, which is the French whole songbird. It was considered to be, like, even at the time, they were like, there's probably something wrong with us for doing this. And it was considered to be something you that was, like, in defiance of God. <laughs> I mean, okay. I feel like the French have done a lot in defiance of God <laughs> over the years. Oh, no. Okay. Right. Anyway. So she passes this story on, yes. elaborating a little bit. Yes, the friend promised very faithfully to keep this secret, and then immediately told her neighbor that three black crows had taken this most alarming flight. Oh no, okay. The next edition of the story made it four, and in this way it spread, until it was very credibly reported that 60 black crows had been evacuated by one unfortunate varlet. See, this sounds like one of those really bad drinking songs. Like, 99 bottles of coke on the wall, except it's just crows that you shit. Yes. Also, it was coke where you grew up? Well, it was coke or it was root beer or... I don't know, it changed. I've only ever heard it as bottles of beer. Really? Yeah. See, this this comes from growing up in a very conservative area, I think. Oh, yeah, that might be. Yeah. It's like, you can't... Like, why? We can't have kids singing a song about beer on the wall. Like, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. I, I feel like we can make a tongue twister out of this, too. Like, how many birds would a peasant shit if a peasant could shit birds? Apparently 60. <laughs> <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Sven the Surf shit 60 songbirds. There we go. That's a good one. It's the best I can do, even though crows aren't songbirds. They just kind of croak. They do croak. Future Mac here. Just... To say if any listeners have an idea of how to better produce a tongue twister based on peasants shitting out birds, please let us know. We'll give you a shout out on the next episode if you come up with a good one. But the joke had gone further than he dreamt of. He became much disturbed 
and assembling his busy neighbors, explained to them that having wished to prove whether or not his wife could keep a secret, he had made such a communication. Oh, wow. Okay. Soon after this, his wife dying, it doesn't say why or how, it just says soon after this, his wife died. His wife, I mean, okay, fair enough, it is the Middle Ages. He ended his days in a cloister, where he learnt three letters, of which one was black, the second red, and the third white. The end. Okay, hang on. He learned three letters. Mm -hmm. What is the significance here? There is a footnote for this. Okay. From the translator, this seems merely introduced to tell us in the application, so the long, like, this is the moral of the story business. Right. Right. That the black letter is recollection of our sins, the red, Christ's blood, and the white, the desire of heaven. So it has nothing to do with the story at all. Huh. Interesting. Black, red, and... White. Red and white. Interesting. See, I would be very interested in in looking into that, because there's a, there's a fantastic song by Zach Hempsey, I believe it is, called Silver, Crimson, Red. Or Silver, Crimson, Black. Silver, Crimson, Black. Mm -hmm. And it sort of talks about different associations with those colors, but it's it's still, it's the same thing. Black is death, red is blood, or crimson is like warfare. And what was silver? I think probably blades or something. Probably. It's it's a very dark song. It's very good. Good for um, warm-ups before competition. But regardless, I, I wonder if there's any outside meaning beside sins and Christ. Like, is there like, is there a... A pre-Christian meaning for those colors. There is. Oh, enlighten me. All right. So in folklore, whenever there are things of three colors, it's almost always black, red, and white. Right. And this is because of like, or all right, this is something I'm taking from a semiotics class I had a couple years ago. Oh, I love semiotics. Okay. Define semiotics for those who are less familiar with it. You know the Da Vinci Code? And how the main character is supposed to be a, quote, symbologist, unquote. That's because Dan Brown has never heard the word semiotics, which is actually the study of symbols and meanings. I just, I hate everything about that book. (laughs) I hate everything about that book. Anyway, continue. Yes. Any... Side note, I have to go on this rant. Generally go. speaking, whenever something is like, it's a it's a national bestseller, or if it's on the New York Times bestseller list, it's trash. That is usually true. Nine times out of ten. Nine times out of ten. I hear that Ibram X. Kendi book is actually pretty good, despite being a bestseller. There are some, there are some bestsellers which deserve to be bestsellers, but for the most part, books on that list, I never read. Listeners, if you do have any really good bestselling books... I'm always willing to be challenged. I'm always willing to be wrong. So send them in. I'd love to I'd love to get your reading recommendations. But anyway, Dr. Anderson, who was my uh, semiotics professor, linked this back to the way languages develop. Mm-hmm. So as we know, different languages have different sets of uh, words for colors. Like English is one of the few languages that has a word for light red. Let's call it pink pink. Most languages don't make that distinction. It's just light red. Mm-hmm. There are other languages that do the same thing with blue and light blue, and they have a separate... I was, I think blue and green in... I think it's Mandarin. Could be. Aren't, aren't separate. I don't know about Mandarin, but that is true in Japanese, kind of. I, I'm pretty sure it's true in Mandarin, because if they talk about traffic mm-hmm. lights, it's red, yellow, and blue. Yes. 
because they don't have green. Yes. Maybe I'm misremembering that it's Japanese, but one one of the two. One one of the two. Yeah, there is a there you can say green like they understand the concept, but it's a fairly new word mm-hmm. and so they just don't use it in everyday. It doesn't feel natural. Right. Future Mac here addressing the one of the two conversation that past Mac and past Zoe are having. The correct answer is both. In multiple East Asian languages, including both Mandarin and Japanese, the distinction between blue and green is, relatively speaking, recent. And in many colloquial terms or traditional phrases, etc., etc., speakers of those languages would use the word for blue where we would use the word for green, such as when referring to traffic lights. So, past us are both remembering correctly. Also, while I'm here, when I was looking up this information, I found that Mongolian is an example of one language that makes that light blue, dark blue distinction past Mac was talking about. Since past Mac did not bother to provide an example, I thought I would. Anyway, continue. Semiotics. So... As we also know, usually this kind of color vocabulary gradually builds over time. Like 500 years ago, the English language had no word for the color orange. Side note, the color is named after the fruit, not the other way around. Bingo. I was hoping you were going to bring that in. Yes. And famously, the color blue was also not very common in European languages way back in the day, which is why Homer always describes the sea as being dark like wine. Oh. I did not know that one. I like that. Wine dark sea. So semiotics is the study of meaning and how we attach meaning to words. Yes. Is the TLDR. Words and symbols and stuff. Just, yeah, meaning. The study of meaning is probably the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. It's It's a very tricky field to try and define because you're trying to define what definitions are. You're trying to give meaning to what the study of meaning is. So it's very, very tricky, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much. Like this is, <laughs> this is why I love looking at magic and medieval texts is because in a sense, you're trying to define something that's undefinable. And so there's a lot of semiotics that goes into the study of magic. But anyway. Right. And this process of expanding color vocabulary over time seems to follow a pretty standard pattern. I did not know this. Because I, I know that I know that very very short words tend to be very old root words. Cat, dog, are mm-hmm. a lot of the colors like red, for instance. But lavender is a longer word, so that's an imported word. Yes, and so like you will never find a, or at least you probably won't find a culture that has a word for pink but not a word for blue. Right. Because they develop in a predict- predictable sequence. But you will find cultures that have words for blue but not for pink. Okay. Yeah. Now, the most, like, limited color vocabulary you can possibly have is obviously light and dark, black and white. Mm -hmm. The first color to be added after those two is always red. Always red. So if you have a language with only three color words, they'll always be black, white, and red. Huh. So those are, like, the most basic colors in, like, the human psyche i guess or the human the the way we look at the world wow that's incredible yeah it's pretty cool i did not know that huh black white and red that makes a lot of sense for some reason that just sits right 
Yeah, it just feels right. And that's why in folklore, when you have three different colors, they're always going to be black, white, and red. Black, white, and red. Like in stories with Baba Yaga, uh, sometimes there are like horsemen that represent different times of the day. Oh. Like one's night, one's day, one's like dawn or something like that. And one one rides a black horse, one rides a, rides a white horse, one, one rides, rides a, red. a red horse. That's amazing. And that's that's cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's one of the big things about semiotics is that it has to be cross-cultural. That's why monomyth is monomyth is because it's cross-cultural. Yes. That's amazing. Okay. I'm learning so much today. Yes. Fun things. Yeah. Okay. So we have the three colors in this story, which makes sense. Like in reference to the story, it doesn't really matter. No. But the moral makes sense. Yes. Okay. And so we don't know how his wife died. No. It just says soon after this, comma, his wife dying, comma, he ended his days in the cloister. Huh. It's like the same way that George R. R. Martin killed To avoid spoilers, skip ahead one minute. Killed off Egret. I'm not bitter. I stopped reading the books at that point because he described her death, and this is spoilers, obviously, but he describes her death as, you know nothing, Jon Snow. She sighed, comma, dying, period. And I was so disappointed by the lack of any description or any like actual writing. I'm like, you can't like you can't just kill her off with she yeah. sighed dying. I was like, no, George, no, I can't keep going with this. I assume it hits even closer to home for you because as another assertive redhead from a frozen northern province, <laughs> I'm sure she spoke to your soul. She did. Am I a redhead? Do you I mean that? I mean, there's there's red colors in it. I never thought of myself as a redhead. It is reddish. Maybe Auburn? I don't know. Anyway, regardless, since our listeners can't actually see my hair. (laughs) (laughs) No, that really annoyed me. But I do appreciate Martin's world building. But that is a side note to what we were discussing. Which is to say, his wife randomly dying in this story. Yeah. She just dies. Which is a catalyst for him going into a cloister. Yes. So, my question is, for you, why... Do we need to have the priest at the beginning of this story? And why does he need to join a cloister at the end of the story? I'm going to go with the cloister is probably because it's going to be something to do with the exegesis at the end. Which, oh, since sure. this is since this is fairly late in the collection, the um, translator has started just leaving out most of it because it's boring and repetitive. That's right. That's right. This is all that he retained of that exegesis, is these couple sentences. My beloved, the layman is any worldly-minded man who, thinking to do one foolish thing without offense, falls into a thousand errors. But he assembles the people, that is, past and present sins, and by confession, expurgates his conscience. So, okay, I could be reading way too far into this, but is the commentator saying that the women who are chattering on about this his own sins and conscience it could be because he's trying to you know cleanse himself of these Mm -hmm. things so then why is this a story about these women and why is it not a declaration of his own sins because he is the one who told a lie in the first place well we have to remember that this story predates the commentary by a lot so it's not designed to communicate that moral this is some this is being slapped on later that's true Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. 
that, that's why I haven't been reading the applications for any of these generally because like because they're, they're so far removed. So when were they written? Unknown. All of these stories are originally oral tradition, or right, right. some but of them when, from classical the, sources. When was the commentary? That is a good question. Just for my own curiosity's sake. Let's see. Um, it is unclear because there are a lot of different editions of this text. But Interesting. Most of the canonical ones that are like set down and accessible to us are from the late middle ages like the thir- like the okay. 14th and 15th century i was gonna say 14th 15th interesting so we have these really really old oral traditions that have one meaning of several most likely yes but then we also have this commentary which is still medieval but contains yes. it could contain very different lessons yes yeah, because a lot of these stories are hundreds of years at least older than the commentary that's attached to them. That's amazing. A lot of this is like medieval monks writing down stories they've heard told out loud by the peasantry and then adding their own interpretations. Okay, so given this, not to get too deep on Maine here, since we're mm-hmm. only, you know, still in our first story of the Gesta Romanorum. How then do you, as a medieval scholar, sit here and determine what the meaning of the text is? Because a lot of our field has to do with what is Beowulf really about, for instance. And I I pick Beowulf because so much has been written on Beowulf. And you have instances of like Hrothgar's sermon, which started off as a joke. Like, it's not an actual sermon, but then it became a real thing. And so people did take that as, no, Hrothgar is actually giving a moral godly lesson here it's like well how do you interpret that because Hrothgar is supposed to be a pagan king but the scribe is christian writing from a christian perspective so how do we interpret that like what does the poem mean so how would you either for this story or for any of the stories in the text how do you how would you determine how to read this what is its meaning since we're getting into semiotics here i mean i generally assume that since this one, at least, is clearly an oral folk tale. Mm-hmm. So I assume that it's going to be pretty much as straightforward as any, like, Grimm's fairy tale or something in its intended meaning. Yeah, oh, I agree with you. There's other stuff attached, obviously, because no story can be that old and go through the, that many, like... Iterations. Yeah, without, without accruing a lot of meaning, but... I'm pretty sure that the actual story is just meant to say you can't tell women secrets because they'll not only share them, but they'll make them worse when they do. When they do. Because women are yeah. gossips. They spend gossips. money on shoes and other stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I, I think there's a really big risk, you know, in terms of like how I earlier, you know, arguably reading way too much into it with the commentary of saying like, oh, well, what if it's just his own sins? And it's like, okay, that's a viable interpretation of it, clearly, because I think that that's what our later exegesis is trying to say, mm-hmm. or at least that's what he's arguing for, especially with the silver um, silver, white, red colors. I mean, he's arguing for something deeper there, but the folktale originally wasn't that deep. So, although I think there's probably something to be said about the sheer weirdness of the lie he makes up and why he would think of that and what that says about the storyteller that that's what they picked. <laughs> true why did they pick that or the fact that it's so bizarre and she just takes it 
Yeah, like is it also saying women are gullible? See, that could be one thing. Or is it saying, oh, she clearly understood it as a joke and therefore passed it around because it's a joke. You know, like, oh, "Oh, let me tell you a secret. And then you say something ridiculous and it's like, of course, it's not a secret. It's a joke. That I didn't even think of that. I I feel like we we still have that sort of kind of banter nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, we do. So that's another interpretation of it. But at the, at the same time, it is a folktale. It does have a moral ending. And the most obvious one is don't trust women, they're gossips. You know, mm-hmm. the fish was this big. We have a we have a suitable folktale for men as well. So it goes both ways. It, that's very interesting. That And I suppose I'm getting wound up in the semiotics of it, since there are so many layers to it. And I would tend to say that both the exegesis and the the original tale, and we can't really call it the original tale because it's yeah. been passed down however many times, but the tale as we have it and the exegesis were written at two different times. Yes. And both meanings, I would say, are valid as interpretations. And you sort of have to read it that way. And so I think there's a big tendency in medievalism to try and have one determinate meaning of a text and not allow it to speak in multiple iterations or, or let multiple generations of medievals have their own interpretation of a text. Fair. Although, frankly, I I cannot read biblical exegesis without calling bullshit on like every other <laughs> sentence. Yeah. There's some biblical exegesis that I just read and I'm like, you know, that's just wrong. There's some literal <laughs> interpretations of, of the Bible that I read and I'm just like, that's wrong. Like, that's not even exegesis at this point. <laughs> You're just wrong. Which is why, again, it's so difficult to have accurate interpretations of historical texts. Is because we're not there. We're not then. And even, you know, we have multiple interpretations of what's going on in politics today. So what is real is my ultimate question here. Yeah, man. Like, what yeah. even is truth? <laughs> and now we go back to Socrates. All I know is that I don't know anything. I wonder, I feel like Socrates would be very at home among, like, stoners in a Denny's at 3 a.m. Oh, completely. That is where, that is his space, man. I would love to see that. I feel like that's so wonderfully, it just fits. New idea for a sitcom. Yeah. Just Socrates comes back, and it's just what, what he does. And it's just Socrates being a stoner. We should bring more of them back. Oh, Yeah. Diogenes just needs to be in everything, as far as I'm Behold concerned. Behold a man! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Alright, you have to tell that story for those for our listeners who don't understand what I've just said. Okay, so Diogenes was a philosopher contemporary with Socrates. He was known as Diogenes the Dog, or in Greek, Diogenes Cunicos which is where we get the word cynic, because he lived intentionally in a barrel in the street and rejected all like worldly and material goods. And he also rejected all forms of like human politeness in any mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. He was just, he was absolutely feral. Yes. Essentially. Yes, by choice. Mm-hmm. Like he basically decided the most philosophically honest thing is to literally live as a feral dog. And he did it. You know, you got to hand that to him. Yes. I've actually ordered a bumper sticker with one of his quotes on it. It hasn't arrived yet. Which quote? In a rich man's house, there is nowhere to spit but his face. <laughs> I love that quote. Yes. Oh, man. 
And uh, there are a couple stories about him, like when uh, Alexander the Great came to visit because he'd heard of Diogenes. And like he says, you know, if I hadn't been Alexander, I would like to be Diogenes. And Diogenes said, I would also like to be Diogenes. (laughs) (laughs) The man is just feral. And of course... Alexander, ruler of most of the known world, is like, look, I really admire your philosophy. Is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes says, get out of my son. Get out of my son. (laughs) You're blocking the line. That that takes some major balls. But the thing that Zoe was referencing was Mm -hmm. the philosophers of the time were trying to define what a human being was. And Socrates settled on a featherless biped. It's just this kind of definition by exclusion. You just kind of find traits that... Nobody else has. Yeah, Yeah, you're making it very exclusive. Which is a a very silly definition. It doesn't tell you anything. Right. Well, you've got the great chain of being, and you you basically play 20 questions and try and figure out what a thing is by excluding everything else. Exactly. And Diogenes decided to express how silly this definition is by plucking a chicken, barging into the academy or the lyceum, which one was? I don't remember. The school. Saying, behold, a man! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Diogenes. This is true Gen Z humor right here. It's just Diogenes. He's coming back. I love him. He's wonderful. All right. In any case, I think, have we covered, I feel like we've covered pretty much everything in this story. And it's Many interpretations. You did ask about why there's a parson, and there is a footnote for that as well. Ooh, okay. Um, although the footnote raises more questions, I think. Oh, great. Okay. This is a very Victorian response. <laughs> of course it is. In this scandalous story, the monks seem to have introduced the parson for the sake of conveying a species of wisdom which accords ill with his situation. But they were great monopolizers. They were great monopolizers. Oh, wow. So, in short, the Victorian translator is basically saying there's a parson because the monks wanted the person conveying wisdom to be part of the church. But he's also saying, but it doesn't look good for a parson in rereading after the medieval era. This does not accord well with being a parson. Right, right. I feel like everybody in this story has a chip on their shoulder. Yes, is the lesson in this one. Oh, man. So that's the story that I thought of when you were talking about... The, like, the, the king's wife was doing this satirical thing about how, oh, you don't trust women, you don't... Oh, yes. Yes, and yes, yes, like, yes, yes. I need to tell the story about the crows. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a beautiful hand-in-hand. Hand. So, and I guess jumping into a little bit more commentary on it is there is an established gnomic wisdom, if you will, about not trusting women that the queen from last week used to convince her husband to actually listen to her. Yes. So this is a this is the traditional oldest time back and forth between, you know, women and men, husbands and wives, saying, well, you know, women are gossips and men don't pay attention to women and da da and so on and so forth. So we have time for more. So yes. I'm gonna flip back to near the beginning and look at tale nineteen. Tale 19. Which is entitled, Of the Sin of Pride. Oh, We read in the Roman annals of a prince called Pompey. 
All right. We know him. Yes, and the translator takes another footnote to point out, hang on, Pompey's not a prince. No. Rome was not a monarchy during the time of Pompey the Great. No, it was not. Anyway, Pompey was united to the daughter of a nobleman, whose name was Caesar. (laughs) So Caesar is, like, the footnote character here? Well, the whole story is about these two. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, keep going. I'm excited. It was agreed between them to bring the whole world into subjection. And with this view, Pompey gave instructions to his associate, Caesar, to possess himself of certain distant fortresses. For, the latter being a young man, it became him to be most active. All right. Was Caesar younger than Pompey? Yes. Huh, how did I not realize that? At least I think. I'm, mm. Let's, I'll Google that. I am yeah. interested in knowing that. This says circa 100 BC for Caesar. Aha. This says September 29th, 106 BC for Pompey. So they're not very distant in age, but Pompey is possibly the older of the two, is what I'm getting from that. By six years. 12th of July. Oh, so we've just had Caesar's birthday. Aw. Happy belated birthday, Caesar. I feel like since the month is named after him, we don't need to congratulate him any more than he already gets. That's true. He did, yeah. Well, he got what was coming to him, to be fair. He's got a salad named after him now. (laughs) Anyway, in the meanwhile, while Caesar was out possessing himself of distant fortresses, Pompey, as the chief person of the Commonwealth, endeavored to guard it against the machinations of their enemies and appointed a particular day for the return of Caesar, in failure of which he was to be deprived of his citizenship forever. I mean, that pretty much checks out. And this is where we have our translator's footnote, which reads, The mixture of romance and history throughout this tale is wonderful, not to say ludicrous. The belief that Pompey the Great was a sovereign prince of Rome is only one of the strange delusions (laughs) which existed during the period somewhat loosely known as the Middle Ages. Somewhat loosely known as the Middle Ages? Oh my gosh. How many articles do you think have been written about the Victorians being delusional about their own history? Less than there should be. Because I feel like we're just, like, they're calling back on the medieval saying that they're delusional in their history, and we're doing the same thing with the Victorians, so I'm expecting that later on for future historians to just say that we are delusional in our understandings of history, so. I mean, there are people who study who study medievalism, so, like, I, I know at least a couple people who probably know a lot about how the Victorians looked at the Middle Ages and can write about that at length. There's a... Oh, I just got a really brilliant book. It's a fat tome, and it's basically it's basically that. It's a Victorian novel, essentially, about not medievalism, but like the Roman period. And so it's mm-hmm. this huge novel about some gladiator who like lived and did all these heroic things and da da da. I'll have to figure out if I can remember the title of it. But it's I mean it's a fat book. It's huge. But no, medievalism is very interesting to study, and just a suggestion to listeners, next time you watch a fantasy show like The Witcher, or if you watch Game of Thrones, or anything that has a reference to King Arthur in it, see if you can pick out 
the anachronisms and issues with how we perceive the Middle Ages versus how it actually was. That's, I mean, that's one of my favorite pastimes. I'm sure it's one of yours as well. <laughs> well, I don't watch that much. That's TV, fair. But that's yes. fair. But picking out what people think about the Middle Ages versus how it actually happened is, is quite a bit of fun. And you start realizing that the people who like wrote the Vikings TV show, they did some of their research, but a lot of it is just not up to scratch. Yeah, that's why a uh, saga thing regularly has many episodes about the differences between the Vikings TV show and actual Norse history. Oh, fantastic. Shout out to saga thing. I'm very interested to see to see how Assassin's Creed Valhalla does. I did not know that was the next place they were taking their assassins. Yes, I'm so excited. I wish I were working on it. That'd be such a fun job. Oh, I would love to work for that for that game. But regardless, yeah, I'm excited to see how they play with the with the history of it. Because they tend to do a fairly good job, especially they did a fantastic job with the Renaissance history in Savonarola and the Medici family. So Honestly, if they just like make Saga Age Iceland, you're kind of set. Yeah, you don't need to do anything else. So I'm very, very excited for that. Ooh, what if they made like Harold Fairhair the Templar? I don't know what Templar means in this context. Future Mac here. This tangent just keeps going for a while as Zoe enlightens me as to the details of Assassin's Creed and its lore. I thought maybe I should cut that out because I don't think that's what y'all are actually here for. However, if you would like to hear Zoe talk about Assassin's Creed, please reach out. I'm sure she'd be happy to. Yeah. <laughs> I may end up trimming down that digression. That's entirely valid. It's a very long digression. So, five years were allowed to Caesar to go do this conquest, and Caesar, assembling a large army, marched rapidly into the country he was about to attack. But, the inhabitants being warlike, he was unable to subdue them in the specified time. Caring, therefore, to offend Pompey less than to relinquish his conquests, he continued abroad considerably beyond the five years. I guess he figured, you know, may as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb. Might as well. And was consequently banished from the empire. When Caesar had concluded the campaign, he turned towards Rome, marching with his forces across a river, distinguished by the name of Rubicon. So we've all heard the story, the die is cast. Yes. Here, a phantom of immense stature, standing in the middle of the water, opposed his passage. Okay, we haven't all heard this story. <laughs> it said, Caesar, if your purpose be the welfare of the state, pass on. But if not, beware how you advance another step. Caesar replied, I have long fought for and am still prepared to undergo every hardship in defense of Rome of which I take the gods whom I worship to be my witnesses. As he said this, the phantom vanished. Caesar then spurred his warhorse and crossed the river, but having effected his passage, he paused on the opposite bank. I have rashly promised peace, said he, for in this case I must relinquish my just right. From that hour, he pursued Pompey with the utmost virulence. Anyway, he pursued Pompey with virulence, even to the death and was himself slain afterwards by a band of conspirators. Okay, so we we got that correct. Yes, and then we have a translator note. This story is evidently built upon a confused tradition of Caesar and Pompey. <laughs> well, no kidding. <laughs> 
It was impossible, says Wharton, who's another like person dealing with translating this text, <laughs> that the Roman history could pass through the Dark Ages without being infected with many romantic corruptions. Indeed, the Roman was almost the only ancient history which the readers of those ages knew, and what related even to pagan Rome, the parent of the modern papal metropolis of Christianity, was regarded with a superstitious veneration and often magnified with miraculous additions. Hence the phantom. Yeah. So they're basically saying, like, this is, this is just what happens when people are trying to remember events that happened a thousand years ago and it's gotten really confused in the retelling because none of them know how to write. I love that. Well, plus it's way more interesting if you make it a chivalric romance to a point. You know, you want to have those elements, especially if it was in vogue at the time to do that. I mean, Chaucer did that. Like, mm -hmm. his, his, the Knight's Tale is basically a classical story intentionally wrapped up in chivalric trappings. Right. Which, it's an open question whether Chaucer just thought that was the right way to go about things, or if he was making fun of that tendency. That's a good question. Steal like an artist, I guess. It does make me wonder sometimes, like, what if our understanding of history is just completely incorrect? Like, we've, we've come so far in our understanding, especially of forensic history and archaeology. But what if, like, what if we're just wrong? And what if in one of these texts, there's something so fantastic, but it's actually true? That would be cool. Wouldn't that be cool? I suppose it's like an aloe history, like an alternate history. But I still, I, I like to indulge in those ideas because they make for a great story. And to be fair, a lot of our understandings of history are incorrect because when we're taught history in grade school, we're basically just being given propaganda. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty true. Like, if you ask uh, any random Texan off the street to tell you the story of the Alamo, you're going to get something that's closer to this than to the real historical... Yeah, probably. Probably. The same tendency that produces this as the story of Pompey and Caesar is definitely still alive today. Oh, like you for get sure. people like, oh yeah, I heard about how heroic Crockett was at the Alamo, and did you though? <laughs> it's a good question. Or it's like the the George Washington and the cherry tree myth. Yes. You know, like we that's that wasn't that long ago, but it's one of our founding myths, and it is a myth. You mm -hmm. know, whatever factually happened. happened, you know, wasn't that. Also, weirdly, the wooden teeth thing. Also a myth. Really? That I did not yeah. know. He had false teeth. I knew he had false teeth, but they weren't they weren't wooden. No. The practice at the time was to take teeth out of the mouths of slaves and make dentures out of them. Wow. Which is probably why they don't teach us that in school. I because that's yeah. pretty dark. That is pretty dark. Huh. Good to know, though. That's probably where, where George Washington's teeth actually came from. Ugh. That just seems painful for everyone involved. That's just cruel. That's... Yeah. Ugh. But hey, the more you know, I suppose. Yep. And knowing is half the battle. True. The other half is violence. Also true. It is a battle. Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu didn't actually say that. <laughs> Do not quote me on that. But the sentiment is there. <laughs> yeah. No, that's obviously a quote from William Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, that's an interesting interpretation of... Crossing the Rubicon. Yeah. My meta-mythological brain really enjoys this story because what we have essentially is a threshold guardian. That's true. Yeah. And in, I think it's in the Mabinogian, we see something very, very similar with King Arthur's prophetic dreams. You're going to have to explain that. Ooh, okay. Okay. So the Mabinogian is sort of the Welsh 
If we'll have to get it. We'll have to do the Mabinogian at some point too. I'll write that down because we should do that one. Mm-hmm. But the Mabinogian is basically about King Arthur, and it comes from this Welsh tradition. And King Arthur, it's also in the uh, history of the kings of Britain, done by Geoffrey of Geoffrey, Monmouth. Yeah, Geoffrey of Monmouth, and Jeffy Mons, as we like to call him. Hey, hey, he wrote the HRB, the Historia. What is it? Historia Regnum Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Or the HRB, which is what I call it. And it's so much fun to read. I've 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 got a pet project with some of the manuscripts about about the HRB and the marginalia in them, uh, which we can come back to later. But my point here is that in the Mabinogian and in these early tales, uh, and in Joffrey's copy, there's an instance wherein Arthur has to cross the English Channel, and as he's crossing the channel and sleeping on the water he has these prophetic dreams. Yeah. I do remember this. Yeah. yeah. And so I think one one is a bear, one is a dragon, and mm-hmm. one eats the other, and it's supposed to be like, you will succeed King Arthur because you're eating the great bear of, of ancient Rome or of whoever the bad guy is at the time, essentially, because you can flip these things around to suit your enemy. But it's it's fascinating to me that this happens over the water because water crossings are what is known as a liminal space or a threshold space. So you're going from England into France, but in that water, you're not in either one. You're not on the ground. And in this story, we have something very, very similar with Caesar. Caesar is basically a would-be king, and he sees this phantom in the water. And it's interesting to me that you say it comes from the water, from the Rubicon itself. Yeah, I'm assuming that in the original telling of the story, it's like the god of the river or something. Yeah, or something like that. Because my initial question when we looked at this was, well, why do you need the guardian in the first place? Like, why do you need this phantom to pop up? Why can't it just be him going like, hmm, well, if I cross this river, I need to have the, you know, I need to have the good of Rome in my head. But no, it's, it's an outside body. It's outside of himself who's challenging him. And for those of you who are familiar with the hero's journey, this will be a very familiar kind of commonality. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the hero's journey, the hero's journey essentially begins, I've talked about it before, with basically an everyman or, or your hero, your would-be hero, who must cross from the ordinary world into the extraordinary world. And he has to go through a threshold process and has to come across a guardian, which he must defeat or at least get past. And so this is very literally a medieval retelling with a threshold guardian. So, oh, I like that. I might use this in my thesis. <laughs> and, you know, going back to our American connection, I wonder if in a few hundred years there'll be a threshold guardian on the Delaware. Ooh. Like Washington crosses the Delaware and he has to speak with, like, I don't know, the god of the river. Why not? I was going to say the god of the river or, like, Christ comes to him on a cross. Since yes. American tradition and Christianity go hand in hand. Yes, and, and Christ says, I've got this thing stuck in my hand. Please help me pull it out. <laughs> and then Washington says, I'm a deist. I don't believe in miracles. Go away. Go away. <laughs> That's interesting. I would, I'd be very interested to see if we have a... If we have a threshold spirit in a couple hundred years. I'm trying to think, do, are, are there any other national myths that you can think of that have threshold spirits? Hmm. I don't know. We have a very kind of materialistic uh, national story. Future Mac here. Past Mac should have thought of this, but didn't. You could make the argument that after John Brown's martyrdom, he became a sort of threshold spirit in the American imagination, though a 
guardian of a temporal threshold rather than a physical one. You might be able to find something in the colonization of South America. Oh, that would be interesting, yeah. Because I know there are a lot of stories about, like, various prophecies and supernatural signifiers when the conquistadors were traveling. Although I think that's mostly from the other perspective, not from theirs. Right, right. Hmm, interesting. Well, regardless, the Threshold Guardian of the Rubicon is, again, a a semiotic inference of meaning that's been put into the story where you don't really need one, but it's a psychological signifier that's been made physical. In the, in the story. Huh. All right. Should we do one more? Yeah, I think we have time for one more. Future Mac again. No, we do not. I am trying my best to keep all of these episodes under two hours, and the only way to make that work with this one is to cut it in half. So the next episode will have another story from the Gesta Romanorum and us doing our segments. Please excuse our complete inability to keep our digressions under control. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter at Maniculum and on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Virulence, right? Thank you. Yes. Yes. Virulence. I'm... You know what? I'm just going to cut you saying that into... Virulence.